0: Soundstrike. Soundstrike.
1: Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Demystifying Politics, the show where we help young people engage with politics and the world around them. On our topics today, firstly, we will cover the the COVID crisis in India. Next, we will talk about Nazneen zaghari Radcliffe and her case in Iran. And lastly, we'll talk about Boris Johnson's flat refurbishments, which has caused huge scandal all across the country. Finally, for our bonus questions, we will ask, is liberal democracy the only way in the 21st century? um so we'll start off with covid in india uh, and i'll just introduce it so in india we are seeing an unprecedented crisis like no other 3689 people dead today in new record 400000 new cases and what's important to note is that this is a huge underestimate i cannot and i, I cannot tell you how huge of an underestimate this is for example, deaths are only being counted in hospitals when there are so many stories of people dying in the hallways, uh, dying outside of hospitals, unable to even reach um, hospitals. Moreover, the government has put a cap on the number of tests um, state governments can do in the day, on, on the day, in a day, so we don't know the true scale of the cases. Um, now, what will be important to note not only from this crisis, how bad the loss of life and the true like scale of it is, is a few things. Firstly, uh, how much will the virus mutate and how badly will this affect our current vaccination program when it comes to the rest of the world? Will Narendra Modi himself be punished for this crisis? For example, recently in West Bengal, a couple of days ago, the election results came in and Modi was handed a setback in a state you hope to capture. So will this crisis have political ramifications for a man that has seemed
0: till now politically untouchable? Nathan, what do you think? It's always important to remember that India is a massive country, one of the most densely populated in the world, well over a billion. So it's not unexpected that they would have one of the most uh, dangerous COVID situations in the world. However, this is, as you said, unprecedented. The first wave was, I think it's fair to say dealt with, at least to a decent degree but this is this has this second wave has actually skyrocketed um, after the first wave uh, restrictions came down people went to the cinema there were religious events there were public gatherings and some politicians actually falsely claimed that the virus had been defeated well obviously we see that it's not um that, that's actually coming from an a, a epidemiologist Uh, Chandra Kant Laharaya and he said that in some of the most badly hit states like Delhi and Maharashtra uh, community transmission was so rampant there have been several localized waves which which to give yeah as I said before because India is a large country uh, you're seeing waves uh, national quote-unquote size waves in smaller areas Um, and yeah there will be political ramifications for this you said maybe Um, suffered setbacks in West Bengal but also he's going to suffer on the national scale because many will remember that earlier in the pandemic while India was seeming to be doing better he was exporting lots of vaccines to places like Britain in an effort to boost India and his uh, his own geopolitical standing now it is coming back to bite them because they are very quickly running out of vaccines and people are very are people dying unfortunately so there is likely to be an increase in anti-moody sentiment after this.
1: Yeah. And I think what you mentioned, another thing that will come back to bite bite him actually is the uh, triumphant statements he made towards the end of the first wave. Like they've defeated Corona. They've done it. The PJP's done it. They've done what no Western country could do. And he was like claiming, Oh, everyone thought we'd be bad, but we were actually quite good. I think that's the thing that'll most come back to hurt him. And uh, as you said, Even I thought from the beginning of the pandemic, it's going to be bad in India just because of the sheer population density and and the crowding, the crowding in in most of the major cities. So India was always going to have it tough, but I don't think anyone saw the scale and the ferocity and honestly the pace of this uh, crisis that is engulfing India at the moment. And just, as I said, to put into context, you know, how, you know, how many, how many more people are dying than we actually think, you know. Everyone I know um, who is Indian, everyone I know has a relative that is ill with COVID. Myself included. Everyone I know, um, it's 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 crazy. Like ev- everyone um, has COVID in some way or another. It it the crisis is, is unbelievable. Oxygen cylinders are like gold dust now in India. They've replaced gold basically. I, I think the in- Indian government might start start backing their currency with oxygen cylinders instead of gold um, because it is. It is, like, so expensive. There are people profiting off the pandemic, unfortunately, um, charging exorbitant prices for remdesivir, for oxygen, hoarding these uh, crucial supplies that people need. And so what you're seeing from this uh, pan- uh, from this crisis is like you're seeing just generally from the pandemic as a whole, the good side and the bad side of humanity, the bad side being these profiteers who are sucking um, the, the blood out of India by... Um, hoarding these essential supplies, and then also at the same time, uh, charging exorbitant prices. But you're also seeing like temples and um, different uh, community centers uh, offering services for free to the poor. So you're seeing the good and the bad side um, of India, of of humanity. But I think the most important thing to see from this crisis is that COVID is not over yet. And the moment we think we've won, the, the virus comes back and I think the worst thing that will come out of this, not only really, apart from the loss of life, will be the new mutants. And scientists are saying that they haven't even got an idea of the amount of mutations that have now gone through the cycle in India. Because can, you can imagine if it's going around like millions and millions of people, the virus is going to keep mutating, mutating. That was the biggest fear with India. And now if some vaccine-resistant strain emerges, you know, we could be in trouble. We could be, as much as I hate to say it, and I really don't want to
0: say this, we could be locked down again. Um, and it's also very important to note that the fact that India is now having this situation where they have to hoard vaccines is going to affect everyone around the world currently about one in five global COVID vaccines are being manufactured in India and they were previously exporting many of them so so countries like Britain the US that previously have had very successful vaccination campaigns are also going to see the drawbacks of India's uh, new effort to keep vaccines at home
1: yeah and i think that we've seen a lot of vaccine nationalism generally from the eu from Britain, from, from basically every country and now india which was one of the the, the the most kind countries one would say when it comes to giving vaccines to others now we're going to see them drawn into that same that same
0: uh trap um what else do you think uh, I do, in when you combine this with the uh, Kish, the, the Kishan Lives Matter movement, the uh, the perceived anti pharma bill, this is definitely going to be detrimental to Moody's image as a as an Indian strongman, as a man who's hold as a sort of quasi one nation conservative he's holding I hate to use the British time here, but a one nation conservative he's holding the country together because this virus is now it is completely national, whereas before, whereas the first wave was primarily limited to big cities like Delhi and Mumbai. Uh, this, this second wave is now even in rural areas. And as you have said, and as you said before, it is affecting absolutely everybody. So, yeah, this will definitely be detrimental to Modi's image. And it'll be interesting to see whether this gives China a leg up in projecting strength in Asia and the rest of the world. Yeah, I think the last thing I'll say about
1: this is I do think this scandal is different. Um, and I think it genuinely will hurt Modi because before we've seen so many scandals and everyone said, oh, this time Modi's really met his match. But every time he comes out uh, like a phoenix from the ashes, victorious, untouched, uh, barely even with a scratch on his face. The reason I think this time it's different is, A, he cannot blame it on like partisan um, troublemakers, Uh you know, So for the NCAA protests or the Farmers' Bill protests, he blamed them on foreign nationals, on troublemakers, on communists, what what, and whatnot. Um, a COVID crisis in India, you can't blame that on anyone but yourself, firstly. Secondly, I know lots of relatives who support Modi. Um, I, I, I don't myself, but I know people who support Modi, but they are very critical of him for this crisis. So I do think this scandal is different and he will be hurt by this. And also particularly because he was so triumphant at the end of the first wave and it's really come coming back to bite him.
0: Do you think we should move on? Uh, next topic. Yep. Now, I've, it's been a very busy news week, but one topic I would particularly like to speak about is the imprisonment, the continued imprisonment of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. Now, Zaghari Ratcliffe was born in Tehran, in Iran, uh, prior to the revolution, but in about a decade and a half ago, she moved to the UK and got married to a British national and is now a British citizen. Uh, when she returned to Tehran um, to teach, she was imprisoned by the Iranian government on suspicions of teaching, of teaching anti-Iran propaganda to children and was therefore imprisoned on t- under such charges. She was scheduled to be released. However, due to uh, an infamous blunder from Boris Johnson, who was then foreign secretary, she was, conti- she was imprisoned further and, she, and her sentence was renewed uh, earlier this week. Now, Zaghari Ratcliffe's husband says that she's being kept essentially as a hostage because the British government uh, was no longer paying back debts to Iran from uh, the late 1970s. So I think the question here is going to be, should we continue to, should we negotiate with a regime like Iran Um, or should we be taking more aggressive action in dealing with them? Dev, what do you think? I think we, as a
1: country now, for two... Not not as a country, sorry. Let me rephrase that. I think the Conservative government, for too long, has tried the hardline stance that you mentioned. Uh, We don't negotiate with terrorists uh, countries. We're not going to negotiate with Iran. We're not going to engage. And guess what? For four or five years... A daughter is missing her mother, a, a husband is missing his wife, and we've gotten nowhere. I think the government now, as some news reports suggest, are going to look to repay their debt, and Zaghari Rat- Ratcliffe will be back. I don't condone the actions of Iran. I think it's a horrific what they've done with Nazneen Zagari Ratcliffe. I think Iran as a whole, its government is probably one of the most repugnant, if not the most repugnant, along with North, North Korea, and... Um, one of the most repugnant regimes in the world when it comes to human rights. Uh, But I think if the UK government had, uh, earlier on, started to pay back that 400 million pounds, we wouldn't be in the situation. And a a father would not, you know, a mother won't be losing her daughter in Iran, in Iranian prison. A whole family will not be mourning, you know. Um, She's been on hunger strike. She's had horrific health. She's had lots of mental health issues. I think it's really just time to just pay pay back the uh pay back the money. Anyways, we are, we are isolating um, Iran when it comes to sanctions on many other fronts. So yeah, I think the government should pay back the money and let Ratcliffe go home.
0: I think yes, I think the the aim for Britain is not just this conservative. Well, it has to be the aim of this conservative government because they've been in power since two thousand and ten, but also for future governments, it has to be an aim to sort of disassociates from any relation with any uh, sort of conflict in the region. British involvement in the Middle East obviously goes back a century and probably and really even further back. And I cannot really say that it's been entirely productive. Now our, and in this case, our association with Iran is, has and will cost the taxpayer more money uh, and has caused the, the breakup of British families. So, in the future, to prevent things like this from happening, to prevent British nationals from being arrested, imprisoned, and used as leverage overseas, we need to uh, cut off connections with Iran, but also surrounding countries like Saudi Arabia. I think that's the only real solution because we can pay back the debt, and that will resolve this one issue of cigar Ratcliffe being imprisoned. But that will not prevent uh, Brits from being imprisoned under further. Uh, incredulous charges so yes the aim has to be uh, disassociation.
1: yeah i think also we're going to see a rise in these sorts of like political prisoners because iran basically previously would get a lot of its frozen assets or its debt repaid through the jcpoa which is the iran nuclear deal um and that was how they'd get back their money and grow their economy but now that the jcpoa has been long dead there is they've still got a lot of frozen money frozen assets and the way that they think they're going to get it back now is taking political prisoners taking uh citizens of the the us the uk um pris- imprisoning them on bogus charges and hoping that the governments will finally buckle and as it seems from the news reports today the
0: us and the uk governments are going to buckle and yeah Okay so this is an analysis from Caroline Hawley who is the BBC's Diplomatic Correspondent and Hawley drew parallels between this situation and the situation of British Australian academic Kylie Moore Gilbert. Now this is directly from a BBC article. Last November uh, it referring to the Iranian regime released the British academic Kylie Moore Gilbert who'd been sentenced to 10 years for spying. That was in, in exchange for three Iranian prisoners in Thailand, two of whom had been convicted of a bomb plot. And back in early 2016, when Iran's nuclear agreement came into force, Iran freed an American journalist, and a, Jason Rezaian, in a prisoner swap. It's no coincidence, Mr. Ratcliffe, that's obviously being uh, nazanin's husband, believes that this verdict has come just as negotiations are taking place to revive the deal, the Iran nuclear deal. So it seems that there is an argument that diplomacy between the two countries that a normalisation of relations can fix this. Uh, I do think that this this normalisation, quote unquote, of relations has to be temporary. I do not think it's. I do not think that Britain, as a liberal democracy, can commit itself to uh, openly associating with a theocratic government that regularly oppresses its citizens. Any normalisation of relations has to be limited to uh, we will, we won't take any of the people as prisoners. We won't bomb your country uh can never be a we we welcome you with open arms i' I completely reject any sort of deal which uh attempts to bring Iran on side as an ally in the region
1: yeah and I think what you said is actually really important because I think that yeah I think that our relationship with countries around the world should be normal it should just be like you know we should be amicable basically with the majority of countries around the world I don't think The U.S. and the U.K. should be um, actively pursuing any sort of like hostile actions towards politically particular governments. I think, for example, normalization of relations with Cuba or with Iran. You know, it's 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 fine, but I I agree that it should be limited to yeah. We promise we won't bomb you. We'll stop. We'll stop like our sanctions on medicine or whatever, and we'll kind of let you be. Um, And but yeah, I don't think we should be. You know, welcoming, encouraging investment in Iran, or welcoming them in, or start singing praises of the supreme leader of Iran. And I think, I think with North Korea, I think we we'll take a slightly different approach because North, because of the the, the the nature of how oppressive their regime is, I don't think normalization is even possible with a country like North Korea. But I do think it's possible with Iran because Iran is slightly more open than North Korea. Um, but yeah, I actually agree with you when you say that it shouldn't be. We can go over the top when it comes
0: to normalisation, when, when it comes to with Iran. Regardless of whatever policy decisions that the UK government pursues in regards to Iran, it's clear that Nazanin needs to come home. Now, on to our next story. In a controversy that has seen the government accused of elitism and corruption, uh, we now have a, another another money-related scandal. So prime ministers in the UK have an annual allowance of £30,000 towards maintaining their Downing Street home. But there are speculations that the renovation uh, pursued by Boris Johnson and his partner, Carrie Simmons, cost up to £200,000. Now, it is said that in an interview with The Times, that Carrie Simmons described Downing Street, well, this is 11 Downing Street where where Boris Johnson and Carrie actually live, described as a, quote unquote, John Lewis nightmare. Um, this has obviously led to accusations of elitism that they believe they themselves to be above a shop like John Lewis. And obviously they are now, they are now being accused for using taxpayer money exorbitantly to fund uh, the renovation of their private home. What do you think the political ramifications will be uh, of this scandal, I guess?
1: Well, first of all, um, when it comes to John Lewis, I, I have no idea what she has against John Lewis. I, I, I am I the only person that thinks it's a pretty good high end store? Secondly, no, I honestly, was
0: confused when I saw that as well. I
1: can not someone saying like a little nightmare or something like or making fun of Tesco. But I thought John, John Lewis, Marks and Spencer, they're actually pretty, you know, middle class, upper middle. They're not some sort of like. Well, anyways, that's quite beside the point. Um, I think the scandal itself. Um, I was i was gonna take a normal take on this and just say you know it is it, i wouldn't call it particularly scandalous if i'm gonna be perfectly honest there's some people with some manufactured outrage on social media like this is the worst thing a government has done in the past 50 years like and yeah okay redecorating your flat i mean if i'm gonna be perfectly honest i don't really care but i saw a really interesting article in the economist where they took a different view on it which is that actually why do we have the prime minister of our country living in a glorified flat? Like, so what the economist said is for example, the US, uh, the, the, the president in his free time has um, acres of land, a bowling uh, alley, a cinema, a private jet, uh, tennis courts, um, lounge area, spa. Um, retreats, et cetera, et cetera, because they know how demanding the job is of running, um, you know, a major superpower. Britain, yes, we're not an empire anymore, but, you know, Britain is still a superpower. And being the prime minister of a superpower does take its toll. And what happens is, uh, what The Economist um, article argued was that you you get um, to the end of your day's work and you have to end up going back to a flat where you have to do the house cleaning yourself where you have to do the laundry you do basically the tasks most uh, people have to do on a daily basis and uh, except all you get is a, there's a cleaner that comes around every once in a while to your room. And I think that the reason we as the country has done that is because we want our prime ministers to be normal. We don't want them. We, we say okay, the pomp and the glamour, that can be the queen. but the prime minister, he has to be normal. He doesn't have an exorbitant salary, doesn't live in some big flat some big house. and he has to represent Britain. But I think that 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 or the Economist article argued was that that's not the view we should be taking. You know, why is the Queen living in an extremely expensive house with all the pomp and
0: the glamour and she,
1: every expensive house? Yeah, I really think
0: that Downing Street is a relic of the old role of the Prime Minister. Exactly. Officially, the Queen is the head of state, and the Prime Minister is supposed to take on a secondary role as head of government. But really, since Blair became The first quote-unquote presidential prime minister. Uh, The role of the prime minister has really shot up in terms of relevance um, and their duties. It
1: it, it shot up basically since the nineteen, since second since the Second World War, the monarch has been extremely irrelevant. If we're going to be honest with ourselves.
0: Yeah, the prime minister is no longer simply an advisor to the monarch. Regnant. The prime minister is the is now the center of the show people attribute successes in public life or uh, failures in public life either to, to the government or to his or her government, to the prime minister and his or her government. So it is, we're really being dishonest with ourselves when we say uh, the prime minister is simply an advisor to the monarch. No, we should start having higher expectations of our prime ministers and that high that heightened expectations might, as you say, Come with increased privileges like a larger home. Now, I'm unsure as to whether I really want to be enriching a political class that I don't think has really served Britons in the past 10 years. But I do think if we can guarantee that politicians will be more dutiful, then I am not inherently opposed to a more luxurious residence. Yeah,
1: and I think. I don't necessarily think we need to have some sort of like, we need to turn it into, into the president, you know, but I do think that the leader of the country should be slightly better better taken care of. Um, and, you know, let's be honest with ourselves. What, what was the scandal for Boris Johnson that he wanted like, um, what was the exact number again? Was it 40,000, 400,000 that he was...
0: 200,000 versus 30,000. 30, yeah, 200,000. So,
1: for example, when Obama came in, it, he spent like Eleven million dollars on just redecorating the White House. Trump spent ten million. Um, you know these, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is, is lives fairly modestly, so we're gonna have a, a huge outrage over this. I think there are more there are there are better scandals
0: to focus on honestly when it comes to this government. And
1: don't worry, there's a massive yeah,
0: particularly the Greensill problem. Capital scandal that we had exactly. just a few years ago.
1: There are plenty. There, there's a many list of options to to choose from. I honestly. If I'm gonna be perfectly honest, I think this is a bit of a non-scandal. And I think all, all it really shows to serve is all it really serves to show
0: is that we probably need a more l- luxurious
1: residence for our prime ministers.
0: One important, one sort of interesting ramification of this is that Boris Johnson seems invincible, completely invincible in the polls. He's actually, according to a poll conducted by the independent, extended his lead on Starmer's labor despite uh these accusations of corruption. So why do you think this is uh what do you think is causing here the extension of his lead over kistama I think um that
1: Boris Johnson has
0: this Modi
1: Trump-like quality whereby they are just simply immune to scandals. <coughs> Trump, of course, said extremely incendiary things about women, about minorities, about disabled people, about all sorts of Different people, um, any of which a, a normal politician would have been down and out for, um, along with alongside a numerous other uh, um, scandals about cheating. Uh, you know, there's, we can't delve into that. Modi uh, similarly has had loads of scandals, and I think Boris Johnson has had uh, his fair share too. And what they all share in common is their ability to brush it off. So Trump, for example, says, oh, fake, he says fake news or just simply brushes it off. Like, yeah, well, uh, Modi does brushes it off by simply being above the fray. He barely engages in the the trench warfare that is domestic politics in India. He tries to be this sort of supreme, like it's almost religious cult like figure by sort of just staying above domestic politics in India. And I think what Boris Johnson does is he. Yeah, has this facade like, of a
0: unlikable fool with his yeah, so he's uncombed like, hair?
1: He uh, roughs up his hair, he comes up, he goes, oh well, 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 you know, the British people don't really care. And he's sort of just, just immune to any and all scandals, really. And I think it's a really interesting phenomena to see modern-day politicians just unaffected by scandals that would kill the careers the most. Now Sorry, just I was gonna, just, just just last thing before we move on to the, the bonus question um I was just gonna say for example jeremy Corbyn had the anti anti-semitism scandal stick to him for his whole um career as leader of the opposition and he never quite got it off because he never quite mastered the art this boris Johnson Trumpian art of just brushing off scandals like they mean nothing and I think that it's interesting to see you know it just interesting
0: thought yeah now on to our final question is liberal democracy the answer throughout the western world in the past five to ten years we have seen the, we have seen brexit we have seen the rise of trump we have seen uh the almost victory of marie le pen le, marie le pen in france we have seen the uh national conservative takeover in poland and hungary There seems to be a rejection of liberal democracy across the West. So we are asking, is it viable? And is it the answer in the 21st century? Dev, any thoughts to begin?
1: I think, you know, with liberal democracy, um, I think it's an interesting challenge that it faces nowadays. Um, I think that it has faced challenges in the past, uh, namely fascism, absolute monarchy, communism, And now sort of right, whatever you want to call it, right wing populism, um, authoritarianism, you know, it faces various challenges. I think that liberal democracy, I think I am a supporter of it. Um, I do stand up for it. And I think with the challenges of the 21st century, I think that I still believe that a system which recognizes individual rights and democracy and the right of, of, of all people to have a say in their elected government, I think that's still a very powerful idea. And I still think the basic right um to choose your own government, the basic right to your own freedom of expression and your own thoughts, I think that's still very powerful. And I think you see that, yes, there are some liberal democracies, like in Hungary and Poland, that have creeped towards authoritarianism. But there are also, you know, in Hong Kong, we see, Protests in Myanmar. We see protests of people yearning to be free. So I do think that the basic idea that you you have your own rights, you have rights, and you have the right to choose your own government. I think that is still a very powerful idea, and I think it is the um, I think it is, you know, the way forward.
0: Uh, I am of the opinion that the whim the whim of the people, which is now in the modern era, constantly under the influence of Uh, popular media, and big journalism. I do not think that that is an effective tool for managing a government. Um, In the past, you might say that's because people's interactions would have been much more authentic. They would not be carefully manufactured by Instagram echo chamber algorithms. Uh, They would not be manufactured by Hollywood or by uh, big corporations like Fox and CNN. Um, so their opinions would be much more relevant to day-to-day uh, go- goings. However, now we 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 know that the media relies on overblown issues to sell stories, and therefore a populace that is uh, completely trapped within that ecosystem cannot be affected to cannot be um, to, expected to effectively govern. Now, this is not to say that we should uh, take them off their franchise. We need to have a serious. We need to have a serious consideration about whether liberal democracy is compatible with this sort of uh, uh, big journal- big journalism ecosystem, where we allow uh, news and media corporations to have this endless sway over public life. We do need to look at antitrust legislation to ensure that people have these authentic conversations with their neighbors, uh, with people in their local communities once more, and therefore I think that would allow. Uh, their votes to be less based on whim, based on what they saw on TV, what they think national problems are, versus what national problems actually are, which they could m- much better learn by being active members of their local communities. Uh,
1: yeah, I actually, I, yeah, I agree with what you say. I think that the problems that the problems that liberal democracy has, the inherent side effects it has, I think that they can be managed, and I think, yeah. I do agree that, that the uh, journalism ecosystem is quite toxic. I think the worst example of it is America, unfortunately, where you have companies like CNN that thrive off like um, making politics to so, so sort of theater, this sort of like flashbang um, spectacle when it that's not what it is. It's not a house of cards, you know? It's uh, people sitting down trying to make their country a better place. It's not a battle between yourself. You know, you're living in the same country you know the other person your neighbor's not your enemy and i think that the journalist ecosystem um it thrives off an enemy it thrives off um showing someone that you should fear you know in and in the 60s and the 70s and the 90s that was communism that was the soviet union once the soviet union collapsed you know the enemy had to become other people in your country so i think that um the way we we can solve this is yes so first of all andy torres legislation making sure people like murdoch and other billionaires don't have you know unnecessary influence over public opinion b i think we should have a combination of unbiased state media i'm not when i say state media i say state-run media but don't think of it with the connotations of like iran or north korea think of think the bbc a bit more like impartial broadcasting network alongside private neutral broadcasting um networks, which I think we do have in the UK, I think BBC, Sky, ITV, they're all fairly neutral. And that is because we have a broadcasting regulator called Ofcom, which um, states and governs impartiality rules. So I think in the UK, we don't have a problem as much when it comes to news organisations, I think our problem stems from the tabloids and newspapers, which are often controlled by a minority of billionaires, who then proceed to stake out fortunes by spreading propaganda about
0: immigrants and minorities and spewing hate. That is definitely true. That is definitely true. Uh, We know that one problem with the extension of capitalism and the private mode of production to news is that bad news sells best, sensational news sells best. And therefore, and the obvious, the most obvious example of this, on newspapers like The Sun, big, bold capital letters, uh, informal, an informal register of speaking, which appeals to the lowest common denominator in society, such that anyone uh, who was previously uninformed can now, now has supposedly a clear idea of what the country's existential threats are. And therefore we see um, crises overblown uh, to enormous proportions. For example, I'm aware that last summer with the um, illegal migrant crossings, we had maybe at its peak a few thousand. But if you had read the uh, Daily Mail, you would think that it was like a total invasion and that Brighton was going to be uh, filled with Syrian refugees when that simply wasn't the case.
1: Yeah, and I think the worst part about it is, is, as you mentioned, what is essentially happening is that a handful of billionaires are indoctrinating the working class. And filling them with hatred uh, and filling them with untruths. And I think that's just toxic for our country.
0: Definitely so.
1: Um, I think what we talked a bit about liberal democracy and some of its side effects. Do you think do you want to talk about like alternative ways to organize society? Um, and maybe the alternatives to liberal democracy? Because I think over the past century perhaps since World War II, it's sort of, liberal, liberal democracy has had this stand in the world like it's unbeatable, like there is literally zero alternatives to do it. So, you know, would maybe a Singaporean style of authoritarianism, um, is that a possible alternative? Is, you know, direct direct democracy an alternative? Is, you know, perhaps uh, slightly less franchise, you know, a bit more of a, a, a Republican um system in the sense that you know it is more in the hands of the politicians how do you think we should organize society and do you think there are alternatives to liberal democracy
0: I have to admit I am a big fan of the Singaporean style of government they have a Westminster parliamentary democracy however since Singapore's independence uh, the majority the country has been controlled by the People's Action Party first under their Uh, leader their founding father Lee Kuan Yew Um, but that's that's dominance has continued into the modern day now just to give you some example just to give you some idea of how instrumental this style of government has been for Singapore when Singapore declared independence from Britain it was a backwater colony uh, being threatened by the powers of China um, that was suffering under ethnic division between the Chinese, Malay and Indian communities that live there. But now it is uh, one of the most advanced economies in the world, far richer per capita than the UK or the US or Australia or any uh, Western country. And they seem to have, unlike many Western countries, breached sort of a resolution on multiracial experiments. Obviously, we've seen across the European continent lots of um, ethnic conflict with recent refugee and immigrant populations. However, that's that problem seems to have been resolved on a large scale in Singapore decades ago. Um, there are There's criticism that this style of government is anti-freedom of press. I don't think, I think uh, such accusations are overblown. Um, and even so, I think that is preferable to a society that is struck by internal division and struck by poverty. I am a big fan of the Singaporean system. What are you, do you have any contentions with the Singaporean system? I
1: think the Singaporean system is actually a very interesting case study because yeah, I mean, it is a democracy because it has universal suffrage and it does, you know, people can vote. But what's interesting to note is of course, it has state media. um, Freedom of speech is pretty, you know, it's not that free. Freedom of assembly is pretty restricted. And generally, um, critics of the government have been like suppressed, although not to the extent you've seen a proper like authoritarian government, like North Korea. I think actually, it, with at least with developing countries, I think a slightly more, a, like a touch more authoritarian, um, or a touch more, you know, strong government is required. I think we have yeah, with developing countries for sure, because otherwise you're going to have a situation with a lot of countries like in Africa or with. Um, or, or or in the Middle east where you're constantly having civil wars, you're constantly stuck with internal divisions and dissent um, with elections with no real outcome. I think definitely initially with developing countries a Singaporean system is preferable but I think once they reach a certain level then you know that should be curtailed and it should be you know a uk us style free liberal democracy where the citizens are then educated enough and healthy enough and you know well fed enough, and more and comfortable enough to make you know the right decisions and educators decisions about who should serve them in government
0: yeah the problem with uh within developing countries constantly changing your leader either four or five or eight or ten years is that just as the country begins to develop you take away the individual you rip out the individuals that are the impetus for such change Uh, that is not beneficial we've got to remember that many uh of the so-called developed countries in the modern world, particularly Britain, were never never really developed under this idea of universal suffrage. Uh, Obviously, Britain didn't let women vote for the first time until 1918. Uh, They didn't, and they didn't let let working class men vote the same year. Uh, They didn't reduce the voting age to 18 until the 1960s. So it's not the case that uh, Britain developed under universal suffrage. And therefore, I think it's kind of it's very privileged to for Westerners to expect uh, current currently undeveloped countries to develop in a similar manner. So I do think that um, the Westminster style democracy that is seen in Singapore is the best way of dealing uh, with the best way of governing a country.
1: I think um, I think I'd have to disagree with you there a bit. I think that universal suffrage is a is a right that should be. Given, uh, you know, however developed you are as a country, I think, yes, you know, perhaps, you know, restrictions on dissent or restrictions on um, as long as they, they don't get too harsh and restrictions on like assembly. Um, they're not too bad. So maybe you can go slightly Singaporean in that sense. But even Singapore has universal universal suffrage. I think that is something that cannot be infringed upon, no matter how developed you are as a country. Do you think, lastly, do you want to speak about, like, overall, do you think liberal democracy reformed, you know, checked? Do you think that is the way forward? Or do you think genuinely a Singaporean style of government is is the way forward for countries around the world? Because you're seeing in, like, the US, for example, their system of government is now completely inept. Uh, you have a, a different party that comes in every eight years. You have... Complete block in, in in legislative bodies whereby no legis no significant legis- legislation has ever passed because of the filibuster and all significant actions are either taken by the Supreme Court or by executive order. Seeing so that that with you're seeing like the flaws of democracy, and do you think that genuinely Singapore is going to be the way forward?
0: Well, in countries like the UK and the US, I think uh, such political strife is overblown. There, there's lots of talk about civil wars in countries like the UK and the US. I don't think we're anywhere near that stage. However, in much younger democracies like those in Eastern Europe that have just uh, been under Soviet oppression up until 1991, I do think a uh, Singaporean style government might be, be- more beneficial there. Whether their democracy is still very much in its infancy, um, they haven't had many regular, they haven't had very many regular elections. Uh, I do think, while, while I think there's reform necessary, in uh western countries i while i wouldn't be opposed to a sort of singaporean government in the uk i don't think it's necessary in the same way it it is necessary in say Poland or hungary okay um do you think we should end there I'll, I have, think I have a closing statement on liberal democracy, and yes, then sure. I will wrap up uh, yeah. overall. Francis Fukuyama, a, an American historian and political theorist, wrote in a similar man- manner to Hegel that a, political, that a certain political system was the inevitable result of all of human history. Now Hegel, believed, Hegel and Marx believed that communism was the, was the eventual end goal of all human events, However, Fukuyama believes that liberal democracy and free market capitalism was the inevitable result of the internet and of human history in general. He believed that liberal democracy had always proved itself superior to all other systems of government. Now, liberal democracy has now entrenched itself with nuclear weapons and with large standing armies. And that has sort of enabled it to posture as superior I don't think it's superior, uh, I think it's greatly flawed, but I do think it is just sufficient, just sufficient in Western countries. Now, for a brief overview. First, we looked at the COVID situation in India and how it would affect Modi. Then we went right over to London and Tehran, looked at British-Iranian relations and the case of Nazanin Sagari Ratcliffe. And then, uh, we looked at Boris's flat renovations and his seeming invincibility in the polls. Thank you for listening. This has been Demystifying Politics, the politics for young people to get to know more about politics. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the same handle, Demystifying Pod on Twitter. And you can hear us every single week on your favourite podcast platform. Thank you.